0: Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell.
1: And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for
0: boom. boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics
1: on Our Minds.
2: On our boom. minds. Boom. 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 Boom.
0: Boom. Boom. All right. Welcome to Episode 68 eight of Boom. Woo woo. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Hannah.
0: And today was a fun episode. We talk with Canadian freestyle skier Jen Heil, who is an Olympic champion, a founder, a public policy developer, just a total badass, and so much more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's so worthy of all of those different titles. And you'll see it and hear it in learning about Jen's experiences. We talk about her many perspectives from all these roles and how she's actually used her learnings and expertise in overcoming some challenges in all these different roles to improve these experiences for others who are going through things. And it's just really inspiring, I think, to hear her talk about combating fear and her own drive and intensity in doing so.
0: Yeah, exactly. We talk about what greatness can be on the other side of fear. And even at eight years old, she really had that intensity for chasing those challenges and overcoming those fears. So yeah, we hope that it's as inspiring as it was for us. And before we get started, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. And with that, we will jump into our interview with Jen.
1: Today, we are so excited to have an awesome guest, Jen Heil, who is a Canadian freestyle skier from Spruce Grove, Alberta. She won the first gold medal for Canada in the 2006 Winter Olympic Games in Turin, Italy, and a silver medal at the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. She is the reigning world champion in dual moguls. And beyond these championships, Jen is a Guinness World Record holder Canadian Order of Sport recipient, Stanford Graduate School of Business Leadership Award winner, founder, the mother of two boys, and so much more, which we're excited to get into today. And a new friend, too. So we're really excited to have Jen in the area. And just thank you so much for joining us on Boom today, Jen.
2: Yeah, as I said, I'm here with my two favorite podcasters, so I'm ready to go.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you for repeating that on air. We really appreciate that. <laughs> so one of the of the many things that I'm amazed by um, when I learn more about you is that you were you started skiing when you were just two years old. I tried to ski recently, um, and I <laughs> can barely do that. So this really impressed me. Maybe two is a little bit young to remember when you first knew that you wanted to ski but I'm wondering if you remember the first time that you wanted to be an Olympian and if you could share a little bit about what that was like
2: yeah well first off it's way easier to start skiing when you're two than later in life <laughs> okay, so I'll just put you. that out there you, the <laughs> minute, you roll easily down the hill
0: I still roll down the hill <laughs> yeah, well, is being
1: humble she's a good skier <laughs> yeah I'm sure I'm sure
0: I
2: remember actually loving skiing and like I was a bit of a shy daredevil and I just remember like begging my dad to put me on the T-bar alone. I'm like, I got this, like and I just <laughs> I just wanted to be gone and I'm flying out down the hill. So, yeah, and then when I wanted to become an Olympian, I was with my mom. She like worked from home and she was schlepping me along on her errands and I was so bored and we had to stop for gas. And I ran into the gas station and I picked up a Sports Illustrated magazine and it was the preview of uh, the Olympics. And so I was turning the pages and right then and there in the gas station in in West Edmonton, I decided I wanted to be an Olympian. (laughs) And so I just needed to go and find a sport. And so, yeah, that stayed with me. I remember like you know, in school, when they'd ask you what you were dreaming of, I would always say Olympian. And one day I was sharpening my pencil in grade two. And uh, Miss Wangler walked over to me, my teacher, and she pointed at the board that like of all our dreams that we had put up. And she's like, you know, Jen, like, I think you could do that one day. And I was like, wow. And it kind of went from this like, dream on a poster board to wow, someone really believes in me, like wow. beyond my parents. Um, and that kind of created
1: Yeah whoa yeah from sports illustrated like something (laughs) captured you in the gas station you're like I'm going for this (laughs) and then a teacher recognizes did she know that you do you know what did your teacher say more about sort of like what where those beliefs came from like was that from your performance as a student or just like yeah your attitude or um. I actually have no idea like I'm
2: I'm pretty intense, so that been <laughs> <gone>. <laughs> she could see that even in grade two. <laughs> like, well, let's get this kid's energy yeah. in the right place. Um, but I, I mean, already by grade two, I love sport. I just like mm. completely felt free doing sport, and I was always like, you know, giving a hundred percent. So she probably would have seen some of that too.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious out of all the time skiing if there's any particular time and and awards and championships is there is there any time that really stands out as a time that is really memorable in a positive way for you or you felt like particularly accomplished or excited about something you achieved
2: Oh man um I mean I have the privilege of saying you know there was a number of those moments but I mean my my proudest performance actually was the first world cup race after the olympics my first olympics and i finished fourth by one one hundredth of a point and so it was disappointing and like hugely crushing to miss a medal like that but it was also really rewarding because i was so new on the tour that i was proud you know of that performance but i had nothing to lose in the next race and we were in inuashiro japan where it is the steepest course in the world like Men will cry in training um because the top <laughs> jump. it's like you're jumping into the abyss. Like you can't even see the landing. You have to fully commit what? on this like angle. You can't see the landing. No. And so it's terrifying, but I remember watching the best male skier at the time, Yanni Latala from Finland. And I was like, oh man, he skis so beautifully. Okay, I'm just gonna like put him in my mind and I'm just gonna hold nothing back. And it's like my my ski stuck to the snow the whole way down apart from the jumps. And I like just skied a flawless run on the, the most difficult course. And wow. It was just this amazing feeling of Mm. freedom where I always felt the safest when I was like just over my limit. Mm. Like I just felt connected to the snow. So in the moment, Um, and that was one of the few places where I was like that far over and flawless. Yeah, my coach said that I could have, you know, been in the probably the top seven men or women that day. So wow. that was really exciting. Yeah.
1: Wow. I love the this idea of your skis sticking to the snow. Like that's something only you can feel and know if you're like really in it.
2: Well, and three moguls per second is like a lot going on. So it definitely wow. doesn't look like the those skis <laughs> are sticking to the snow, but Yeah, I love competition because I always felt like this safety bubble Mm -hmm. because of like that intensity and channeling my emotions and my focus into it. I always felt very protected and safe. um, And I love that intense threshold. Um, And that's kind of
1: the feeling of ski sticking to the snow. Hmm. It's so interesting. This like the words you've used so far, like protected and safe, going three moguls a second. And then also earlier you said shy. You said shy daredevil. <laughs> it's like These are words I would never necessarily put together. But um, I feel like that just speaks to your um, awesome perspective and also diversity of experience and expertise. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think I am a juxtaposition and I've come to accept it. It's very
2: confusing <laughs> at times. But yeah, I'm like pretty fearless, but also
1: cautious. It's like just this weird mix. Yeah. Mm. I like to say, yeah, I feel... I feel that way sometimes. That, like I like to take calculated risks. Like it seemed like they're risks, but I there's a lot of preparation that go into the risk. So, yeah, similar similarly. But I'm uh, yeah, it was awesome to hear about sort of that best time. But also on your website, you have this quote that's over the years. I've been up. I've also been down and broken. Hung up my skis for good, but I've never stopped fighting for the space to create new limits. And it's clear that. That drive has led you to really push those limits and be in these awesome spaces, but also maybe just reflecting on the times where you've been down and broken and times have been a little bit more challenging. Can you share what were the things leading up to those? How did you build that awareness of those feelings and what helped you overcome those challenges?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's moments where I've been crushed and then there's like longer periods of time where I really felt down and broken.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And multiple points, I mean, many points, the question is which one do you want to zero in <laughs> on? <laughs> but um, I guess the first one really was right after the 2002 Olympics. So it was deemed a success to be that young and... and At my first Olympics and finishing fourth. But I was completely crushed because I realized how far I was from being my best. Mm. It really wasn't a Mm. performance where I felt like I could command the performance like I was in control. Mm. Um, I had like one of my biggest crashes in training just before the final run. And I kind of felt like I had to hope to do my best. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, I was struggling a lot. So I had uh, chronic shin splints, which no one really had an answer for. So it was really hard for me to ski a top to bottom run. So I'd have to do a lot of visualization. I'd have to side slip the course and like imagine myself going through the challenging sections rather than actually skiing them. And then just emotionally, I was already completely burnt out at 18. Um, There was Mm -hmm. just so much going on in the team and the pressure of, you know, learning how to compete and stand out as well and be away from home. And like all those things mm. I was pretty burnt out. And so I just, I wasn't, I didn't have the spark. And so I just really felt like something had to change. And that's where with my coach and a business leader in Montreal, we kind of made this plan for success where we didn't want to compromise any of the preparation. Mm. Um, and that meant having you go and find the resources. And so that's the moment where I moved across the country and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to go out and hire, you know, the best team. So the best physiologist, the best strength and conditioning coach, best physiotherapist, uh, deep tissue masseuse, nutritionists, And then um, over time that, that team actually continued to grow. <laughs> and then I took a year off from competition, which I was to work with this team and rebuild my body And I was highly criticized by my federation because it was a chronic injury, not an acute injury. Mm. And also, you know, the national media told me that there was no chance I'd be able to come back and be successful for taking that much time away from people. So yeah, that was the first major big downer moment, but it really motivated me to shift my path and, and again, find the joy in the process and like getting better every day. And that's where kind of that. Endless energy and power comes from, in my opinion.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's incredible, and it's so interesting to hear this team that you built, and it's such a diverse team. Like you were saying, from you know, massage therapists to physiotherapist to nutritionists, and I, yeah, I would love to hear more about the impact that you feel like having such a diverse team made, um, and even as you said, it continued to grow as well, and how those teams interacted or worked together, like you were able to sort of integrate all of those different aspects of health together for your both like physical and mental well-being?
2: Yeah. So the unique part wasn't having access to these resources because a lot of athletes have access to these resources Mm -hmm. on their own. Mm -hmm. It's usually for less time. It's usually um, more reactive to an injury or a problem. My approach was really to be proactive and put this team around me to build me up rather than to like fix me. And I think the other part that really differentiated it was this was an integrated team. And so, um, at the center was my technical coach and my technical coach was managing and reporting to all the specialists. So if I look tired, like we would modify training, um, technically, I was having a hard time balancing my weight onto my right, my right ski. So my turns were slightly lopsided, mm-hmm. and it was holding me back from a speed perspective. So we actually rebuilt like my body in the gym, to balance that out physio doubled down on rehabbing that. And so yeah, we really worked from a, from a performance standpoint, what's the outcome all the way back. And then I didn't realize it at the time. But Now, having worked in the safe sport environment and and having um, helped design and lead the development of the Canadian safe sports system, I really realized that my health and well-being was at the center of that. Mm. And that's actually quite unique. A lot of coaches um, and attitudes in sport are, you know, that you have to break the individual or, you know, push on the buttons for anger or to motivate them further. And I really felt like my whole team had... Jen's back first, um, and my best interests, which then just created this sustainable excellence over time. So um, just really fortunate that, you know, every practitioner, it wasn't about their ego, it wasn't about connecting my results to their career, Mm. it was really what's best for Jen. Mm. Yeah, that was really the probably difference maker in my entire career.
0: Yeah. And it's great, I think, to see that from both the physical and mental health perspective and and really having those together versus like you're saying, sometimes they're prioritizing physical health aspect of it and kind of neglecting the mental health. But then at the end of the day, I think over the long term, those really go hand in hand and it's hard to have one without the other.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think over the short term, to your point, you can definitely get performance under, you know, really difficult Um, extraneous circumstances, but it's Mm -hmm. the sustained performance that gets lost there, and and isn't always the best interest of the athlete being put first. Mm -hmm.
0: So, yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to follow up on something that you had mentioned, both with the earlier question and this past question, which is about visualization. And I'm so excited that you brought this up because I've been at a psychology conference this uh, past week. And they talked about visualization for sports performance, and even the study where they asked volleyball players to visualize flying, and that helped them jump higher. Um, So it's just fascinating. And then it was really interesting to hear you talk about visualizing both yourself as another athlete who is a high performer, and then visualizing the course before you execute, I guess, the run. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that process and how you think it's been beneficial for for you and your performance and then if there's any other sort of techniques or things that you feel like you've used um that have been beneficial when you're either preparing for a run or yeah t- or yeah are taking on something challenging like that
2: yeah you're asking me to dissect my whole approach to performance <laughs> um in one question <laughs> but <also my> best. <laughs>
1: It's a challenge. We believe in you. (laughs) Thank you. you.
2: So I was very lucky. My dad introduced me to meditation, visualization, and yoga before anyone was talking about it. So when I was probably seven, he started to introduce these concepts to me. And my first sport was actually competitive swimming. And so I remember he like, taught me how to visualize the race before and and like to see myself succeeding and the feelings of my body. And so I would do it before every race just because I, I, it's what I did. And then one race, I didn't do it. I was hanging out at the side of the pool. I didn't want to go take the time to do it and get into the right mental space. And I was completely lost in that race, mm-hmm. like didn't know where I was. It was a terrible race. I didn't feel like I was in my body. And from that moment forward, I was like, okay, I'll visualize like every time I do this. And so it really was a part of my practice. It's still a part of my practice now that I'm not a skier. Like I visualize everything <laughs> and like the states I want. And so, I mean, the ultimate, so I'll try and fast track this, but the ultimate performance is really the integration of mental, physical, and emotional And visualization is a great tool to integrate that. So like, for example, when I'm doing a jump, I have to break down the technical components. So like where my vision is, like holding the pressure on the front of my skis to really um, set the power to to push off the jump with the exact timing. And then once I'm in the air, what I'm going to do. So that's like, I'll be visualizing that. But then I have to feel like this really big comfort with speed, and so I actually have to feel myself like kind of letting go and letting the speed wash over me. Um, Cause that's when you do your best tricks is when you're going the fastest really. And then emotionally I have to feel, I have to switch from fear, which is like a very normal reaction. And I have to kind of shift into like joy and excitement and challenge. And so that's like what I'm trying to align every component of, the entire run every Mm. run rather whether training or competition and where this competition start or where this conversation started was like this idea of the safety net um in competition Mm. and it's easiest to integrate it when you have in a sport like mogul skiing that requires such intensity when you have the adrenaline and the stress over time i mean that's where you can bonk and and screw up. But also over time, you learn to control it. And it's like a fuel and like a source of getting into that uh, place of integration. Mm. How did I do? Did I answer it all in
1: in a few uh, sentences? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It's so it's so cool to hear the dissection and the layering and then how it all comes together. And I think as a lot of our listeners are biomechanists, I'm interested in if you could speak at all about maybe, I loved like what you said about, yeah, where your weight and pressure is on your skis. It seems like having those techniques down first, and then there's sort of these layers on top of that as far as uh, having the other pieces been the psychological mental emotional pieces and then being able to integrate those together but i'm curious about sort of that foundation piece and i think a lot of people a lot of our audience probably think about the sort of fine-tuned biomechanics that are there and can you speak a little bit more about how you train or learn those things and and maybe even how visualization like how you connect that with your sort of other pieces
2: yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in terms of mogul skiing and biomechanics. Most of it doesn't make sense, probably. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> Physics
2: breaks. It's quite an inter- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite an interesting sport because you have to manage all the forces. Um, your mm. hips and shoulders are square down the hill. So, like, there's fundamentals that you learn on the flats. So, my hips mm. and shoulders are always down the hill it's not carving a turn like an Alpine skier would carve, or I'd carve a turn just for fun. It's actually like a slide and an edge, which allows us to get like quickly um, from side to side. And so we practice a lot of that movement. Some of the most valuable technical practice is on the flats. And I had a coach that was just really, really dialed into making us do flat runs over and over. Um, And that creates the base movement without having, you know, the extra challenge of having to absorb and having these lumps of snow coming at you.
0: Um,
2: And so it's just that repetition over and over, we could get a lot of repetition without the impact on our bodies. In terms of learning our jumps, we do them on trampoline. So a trampoline, it's very different from the takeoff of a jump. But the repetition of where your hips need to be and how you set the rotation and the power comes from that. And then we go to water ramp. So we, we go to a, a ramp made of wood covered with plastic meanies, and then we land in a pool. And so that's, again, different Whoa. angles from a mogul jump, because a mogul jump is actually very sharp and quite small. And so there's so much force that you have to build up. And it's the extension and the time of the extension that really allows you to get the height and distance. And so, yeah, we we do a lot of repetition. And then just, I mean, that's where visualization comes in um, because there is so much impact on your body in this sport that in order to get the extra reps, visualization is pretty critical. Mm. And so, yeah, those are those pieces. And then near the end of my career, we started to integrate Dartfish where we could see like comparison um, to other athletes, to the angles of our absorption. But the most valuable insight actually probably that I ever received came from the analysis um, through Dartfish and our, our biomechanists where we realized that the first like the first mogul section to the top jump was actually the most important of the entire course, which usually a lot of us would be cautious and build up through that. but we the speed in which you set out of the gate to that jump um, exponentially increases like how fast you'll finish the run. And so that became kind of a new focus. And it was quite a funny thing because I my coach would be like, okay, now super fast out the gate. And I'd be like, super fast for one mogul. <laughs> and like put the brakes on. <laughs> Action. <laughs> and so like, again, through visualization, it was yeah. like letting myself have that speed, understanding I could handle that force and all those pieces. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of what you said earlier. It's like layering piece on piece and over time, which allows you to have that level of expertise.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to hear. And it's just like, it's incredible. I think, yeah, what you're saying, just all these pieces where it's like the extremes of everything, but finding a way to have them come together and is, yeah, just incredible to hear about. I wanted to shift a little bit to something else that I was learning about you that I thought was really amazing, which is, that you've helped build British Columbia's safe sport infrastructure, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your role in this and its importance, both as importance having this infrastructure, but then also for you as an athlete, actually being able to be part of of building this.
2: No, um, I mean that was one of the most meaningful you know projects I've, I've been able to be a part of. So I was. Uh, VP of Sport Development at VIA Sport British Columbia. So it's the organization that manages all of the funding of sport uh, for 800,000 members in British Columbia. So we interface with government and then help support all of uh, the sport organizations from grassroots up to kind of transition to national team. And so when I took the role, my team was already starting to think about safe sport and You know, I hadn't been retired that long. And so I was like, oh, wow, safe sport. Huh. And it wasn't something we actively spoke about as athletes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something we were able to recognize as athletes. Um, So it was actually a pretty big emotional journey for me to kind of relive my experiences and those around me uh, through this new lens of actually understanding what it is to have, you know, a space of emotional, physical Um, and mental safety. Mm. And so in order to advance the file and show government that this was critical and needed to happen now, I started to talk with a number of athletes that had been trying to report uh, sexual abuse in their environment for over a decade. Again, you know, I... Didn't really know about it. I'd kind of heard a few whispers, but I sat down with a number of them and really mapped their journey around trying to report so I could bring this to government. And I I don't remember the exact statistics, but it was something like they tried to report, you know, 16 times, um, including to the police, to multiple people at the top level of their organization, and nothing got done. And so eventually the person that they were trying to report did go to jail but it took almost 2 decades. And so their support and their bravery and their courage really allowed us to be like the time is now we this is no longer acceptable like it stops here. And uh, my CEO was super supportive because we were pushing pretty hard and doing really pushing government to act and so Um, In partnership with uh, the national organization, we started to build out the code for implementation, which is now being used across Canada, and really start to map the pathway of an athlete and administrator through this adjudication process. So we had seven lawyers working pro bono for us. Um, A big reason why this hadn't advanced was because of privacy uh, issues around uh, the, the code and reporting. So yeah, I mean, it's, we've had people fighting for decades with like little to no movement. And then the moment kind of was now. And so it was really fortunate to be able to kind of crystallize a lot of that, uh, thinking and, and approach. And now Canada has a safe sport center, um, BC's developing its own as well. Um, so we're moving, but it, it's a long, difficult process. And I do have, you know, there's a lot of instances where, um, there's bad actors. But also, even when people want to do the right thing, the systems don't exist. And so, you know, it's challenging on, on, on everyone who loves sport and is trying to do the best thing. So we're moving in the right direction, much like um, here in
1: the U.S. Wow. I'm just thinking back to your second grade teacher being like, yeah, you can do that. And I'm seeing in these so many notes in your career of how you've taken something that's just been super, super challenging and seems like no one's been able to move forward on or move forward with at the same speed or the same intensity. And it's incredible to see how you really just push and fight and um, get things done. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, that. Clearly has made a huge difference for a lot of people. And as you're saying, like there's still progress to be made, but I think important to celebrate what you have done and accomplished. Um, so thanks for sharing, sharing that, Chen. To switch a little bit to a new topic, I'm curious if you could tell us more about what you're doing now. And you've sort of gone from skiing to more involvement in sport to now Coco Health, your current endeavor. And so curious a little bit more to share what your journey was to creating the startup. Um, and also transitioning maybe away from a little bit of that performance space to this new space.
0: And yeah, maybe yeah, what Cocoa no, Health um, is too for, yeah, really. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we start there? So Coco Health,
2: uh, we're really trying to change the way women interact with the medical system. And so two out of three women in America report feeling misunderstood by healthcare. And uh, no, it's not all in their heads, like they're often told. And so the impact of, you know, women feeling misunderstood and being invisible in the data is that women are diagnosed on average four years later than men across hundreds of diseases um, in a new study. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty shocking. And women historically have been treated as little men, despite having our unique physiologies, uh, unique demonstration of symptoms. And so, kind of the most common uh, example right now is that when a woman experiences a heart attack, she's 50% more likely not to be diagnosed of a heart attack because the symptoms present differently than what doctors have been taught to look out for mm-hmm. um, in med school. And so we really want to go to like the root of that issue in and in, in the fact that women's data isn't out there and hasn't been studied and the impact of that from end to end care. And we want our goal is to get um, women to from the onset of need to care 50 percent more quickly by uh, aggregating different types of data sets. So data sets that women are already creating. So through their phone, through wearables, through their voice, um, all of these are showing to be really accurate when combined with AI um, around mental health and physical health anomalies. Um, So we're able to create this continuous view of a woman's health. And then when we detect an anomaly, that's when our nurse practitioner reaches out to them to check in on them um, and to do a proper intake and preliminary diagnosis if necessary. So kind of this idea of, you know, you it, it will start as an app and you just download the app and then you set the data the data sync and then you forget about it. And that's like are really our intention. Like, don't have one more thing you have to interact with. Just know, like, in the background... <laughs> If you need help, a nurse practitioner will reach out, and we're starting with uh, postpartum um, and perinatal Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's such a paradigm shift, especially in the U.S. I think sometimes we see this in Europe, where especially uh, like postpartum um, women are given help in the home, and people are kind of coming in and checking in on them. But in the U.S., like we really don't see that, and I love that you. Are taking this approach too of using passive data, and so we don't have to, women don't have something else to do, and then just also having that end to end point where we're then connecting them with a healthcare pro- professional, which is really what we need in the end. Like, we can detect these things, but then what are we going to do about it? Because if we only tell them that we're detecting something, I feel like that also runs the risk of just like scaring them and then not having access to the healthcare practitioner. That they need. So it's been really exciting to, I think, both see your the way you're tackling this problem and like leveraging new advancements in AI and um, engineering, but also supporting that with really tangible care.
2: Yeah, I mean it's really informed from my experiences as an athlete. So if I think about it, I had the most privileged medical team around me. I had since I was a teenager and so i had people constantly monitoring me and connecting me to the resources in most cases before i like before i had a critical issue or the symptom was so great they could detect it early and so i lived that experience thinking it was quite normal i guess and then i retired out of sport and had children quite soon after and so i went from having this world class team around me connected care all the time to being mm. alone and when my second son was born, I struggled to hold him um, at eight pounds because mm-hmm. my abdominal wall split um, so so mm-hmm. severely. And despite you know having people I could call who specialized in building muscle, no one could help me because this was specific to women's health. And so it actually took me two years of kind of this relentless search to find answers because I wanted my life back. I wanted to be physically active. That was my stress management as well and my happiness. And so eventually I found someone who did an ultrasound and was like, yeah, the connection is so limited here, you need surgery. But the point being is, if I can't get access to that care coming from the position of an elite athlete, then what woman should be expected to be able to navigate that? And so there are resources out there. but we're asking women to understand what's wrong with them and to know the solution in order to go out and find it. And that's where we really want to shift the paradigm is like, we can see there's an issue let's work together to identify it and get you to the right place.
1: Wow. Jen. And it's just another example. I think that I've heard, we've heard this throughout our conversation today of you taking your experiences and the challenges you face and our adversaries you face in that and like learning from them, improving them and, like giving back to make the process better for others. I I think that's just, it speaks volumes. You've done that as an athlete, you've done that post your athletic career and yeah, and are doing it now and continue to do it. So I think that's the true mark of a, a human performer and, and what it means to be human. So, so thanks for sharing that. I'm curious if you have advice for others, given all of these different experiences, given your high achievements, your passion, your determination, your intensity. What advice do you have for others who might want to achieve high performance in the different domains of their lives?
2: Hmm, good question. I think for me, it was like this idea of choose impossible. Like there's so many reasons that something shouldn't work for all of us. And so it's just this idea of not shying away from that big vision and knowing that you can face the challenges along the way to solve it. And I think that's the other piece is like I've always tried to choose fear. And so when something scares me or when I feel like I'm up against a wall, then I, I want to go through it because I don't want that fear to have that power over, over my life. And so that's allowed me to continuously push through those obstacles. Like I feel a lot of fear, you know, whether, uh, you know, skiing down moguls or moving my family down from Canada (laughs) to go to Stanford and build a company. But, you know, I don't want those, I don't want to be defined by the fear that I feel. I'd rather be, defined by what I do about it. And so those are kind of my motivating factors. And I mean, at the end of the day, you have to have joy in the journey. And so I think if it's not joyful, then you're doing the wrong thing. Like it's not about, you know, you know, everyone says like, do what makes you happy. That's not the sentiment. The sentiment is enjoy the process of what you're doing. Um, And if there isn't that space, then you have to find something else Mm. or at least a new process. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. It reminds me when you're talking about, you know, really just taking on fear head on and, and also almost like seeking out things that scare you and knowing that this is going to challenge you. And it reminds me of a quote from Georgia Dara that says everything you've ever wanted is sitting on the other side of fear. And I think you're just like the perfect example of of what can be <laughs> on the other side of that fear. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. And we're coming up on the last few questions a question that i wanted to ask you which to me might might be a little scary actually uh but is meeting queen elizabeth (laughs) ii um i was just wondering if you could quickly share how that happened and like what that was like
2: (laughs) so i can i can so i got the email from the government of canada asking me to take part in the Royal tour, but I, I read it kind of quickly. I was multitasking. What? And so, yeah, I was invited to you know the the government dinner with the Queen and uh, Prince Philip. And so I had to get the ball gown, and I had to do all these things. And like my, I had a sponsor, Marcel Cosmetics, at the time that did my hair and makeup and. Um, <laughs> one of my other sponsors was Burks, which is like the Tiffany of of the US. And so I had all these diamonds and I actually <laughs> had to have a security guard walk me from the store to my car because I had so many diamonds for the wow. <gasps> and so oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I, I walk in and I'm in line to say hello to the Queen. And I basically like blanked out. I like put my hand on in her hand and then that was it. And I called uh, my partner right after. I'm like, I met her. Like, I don't remember why I said it. And he's like, did she smile at you? I was like, no, she didn't even smile. <laughs> and then I get this I get this picture back and she's like smiling, looking me in the eyes. And like this beautiful woman. But it's like I blacked out. I remember nothing. <laughs> and then when it was time to sit down for dinner, I was seated at her table and got to eat and like I felt so much pressure to figure out which fork and spoon to use (laughs) (laughs) and also side note I had so many diamonds on and it's like nothing compared to the queen it was like I wasn't even wearing anything (laughs) yeah wow (laughs) so that was the experience but yeah I mean again (laughs) like such a incredible privilege to be an athlete and to get to be invited and partake in these sorts of things so it's pretty wild pretty wild yeah
0: absolutely i feel like i would need to go through some like, visualization processes just to <laughs> not be like spilling food all over. just like the <laughs> being able to eat right so yeah that must have been a really a really cool experience <laughs> well Coming up on our last questions, we were wondering, this is a question that we like to to ask everyone. And I feel like you really have shared some times that when you talk about being down and broken, like I could imagine that there are times where in that you might have feelings of failure or loss. And we we're wondering if you could share any specific time where you felt like you failed um, and what you learned from it.
2: Yeah. So I guess... I mean, I, I'm, my mindset's in performance right now. There's plenty of things I feel that outside of mogul skiing as well. But I remember I was expected to win uh, world championships. It was just before just before the Olympics, and so I showed up and I was like pretty confident, and I was like, "Okay, I've got control. I'm going to win this thing." And then I came down and I was like six, and I was like, "What?" Like, I was so good. I was so in control. Mm. And my coach was like, you were so slow. You had no spunk. And so I realized that there's also a place of over control. Mm. And so kind of this fine line of like being prepared, being in control, and then having the courage to let it go. Mm. Like you don't control the outcome. And the only way you get to that next level of performance is to let go of the outcome. And so that was a really important lesson, you know, especially as I move forward in my career, because the stakes only got higher and higher because I was expected to win. And so that was just yeah, a critical, critical moment to learn to let go of the outcome when it's the thing you want the most.
1: Mm. And I think circles back nicely with your theme of joy in the process. Mm. I feel like when I'm in no, not that I've probably ever been in a flow state similar to the flow states you've been in. But when I, the few times I have felt sort of like in sync with, yeah, my body or what I'm doing, like, I feel like I'm completely in that and not thinking about the outcome. Whereas as soon as you're exactly like you're saying, as soon as you're sort of thinking about, oh, I'm doing so well, I'm, I'm going to finish first or something like that's, a, that's sort of a, a note of you being maybe over-controlled or, or outside of the yes, flow. So
2: one comment on that though, is I think, first of all, don't rank your flow state because then you're focused on the output, which you just did. <laughs> right. <or the> <laughs> uh, flow is flow. You take that. And two, I think I I don't want. I don't want to suggest that you can't have a doubt or your mind can't move in a performance. Like I remember telling my sports psychologist, like sometimes I hear the crowd and it's so distracting. And I, I, then I go to out outcome and he's like, actually use that as a signal. Like, okay, I'm going to like train my body that that's a positive signal. And I'm going to go back into my performance. And so knowing you can Mm. cue back in and out, knowing you can have self self-doubt and back in, it's not all or nothing. And I think that's often not well communicated from a performance standpoint. Like I had so much doubt, you know, in the start gate and just being like, it's okay. It's normal. Now, what do I need to focus on? Um, And I would go in and out of that depending on the day and how good the day was. Sometimes you're more tired. Sometimes you have more doubt. You could go in and out of that all day. Like that's literally the fight you're fighting. Um, So.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for that. I like that. It's sort of like being like 100% sure isn't doesn't mean having no doubt. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's the ability to go back and forth. Yeah, I love that. Well, Jen, how can people follow you in your work?
2: Yeah, so we are going to launch in the fall, but there's a wait list if you're interested. uh, CocoHealth.ai. Um, which shows our journey, what we're building. And yeah, would just love for people to leave a comment or get in touch.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I'm sure people will be really excited to follow that and follow you as well. I've had an incredible journey and just in so many different ways. And for closing, we want to know what you're most excited about for the future. And we're thinking of human performance, um, but I guess also of health, or you can kind of take it in whatever direction you would want to take that in.
2: So I would say I'm most excited uh, around personalized healthcare. I think we have the technology now, um, the power through machine learning and AI. So really excited to be involved in that on, you know, in the early stages to be able to shape that and, and make sure that, We're really giving power back to the user um, to be involved in their health journey, not responsible for their health journey, because that should still come from doctors, but involved. And then from a human performance standpoint, personally, I want to get barreled um, in a way that's my goal um, that I need to take off the list in the next few years. So I've got a personal one and then a bigger one I'm working towards um, through the company.
1: Wow, we love that. I love that. Nobody's ever um done a personal excitement. So I <laughs> way to way to take that and hit a home run. <laughs> um Jen, it's been so awesome having you here and thanks for sharing all your experiences, the range of them and I feel so inspired just having this conversation with you, and um, I'm so excited to share it with our listeners. Hopefully, maybe we can even share it with like your second grade teacher or any other people who have been influential in your life, too. Uh, but thanks for thanks for being here with us. Well, thanks for having me, you guys.
2: You're, you're amazing. Your work is really incredible, and I've just been um, so grateful to get to know you guys and get to see the amazing work you're doing and how you're pushing all this forward and also your passion to get it out there and to share it. So. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you.
1: Wow, that was just such an incredible and inspiring conversation. I feel so ready to choose the impossible, as Jen said, and take a note from her book and really just combat the fear that I think does hold us back. I think there's this quote of like, you are afraid of what you might be able to achieve if you didn't have fear which is like it's like almost like you know doing the impossible actually is a little bit scary mm-hmm. so anyway
0: <laughs> yeah kind of like how yeah, we I just, wouldn't I just, grow I just, if we didn't have failures mm-hmm.
1: wow bringing it full circle
0: <laughs> well thank you yeah thank you for listening thank you to the international society of biomechanics and the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory and to Peter Washington for the music.
1: If you'd like to submit a research fail, someone interview, get involved with Boom, email us at biomechanicsonourminds@gmail.com, at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom, And make sure to check out Boom on YouTube as well. And you can get, get to any of those links via our website, biomechanicsonourminds.com. Thanks for listening. You guys make boom what it is. So uh, we're really happy to be here with you today.
0: Yeah, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Hannah.
0: Biomechanics off our minds.
1: Biomechanics (laughs) off our minds. (laughs)